Well, good morning and take your Bibles now and uh, let's uh, start by turning to 1 Corinthians as we finish 1 Corinthians 10 this morning. Of course, you're all going to get a bonus verse as well as we're going to be reading from chapter 10, verse 23, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. So you get that extra verse. Excuse me. Cut. Uh, Stay on me there. Because I love you guys, and because you guys have been good, you get that extra bonus verse in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. But here, uh, starting in chapter 10, verse 23, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in, the full, in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God just as I also uh, please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. So here we are. Hard to believe, but we're finally going to be finishing this section uh, in 1 Corinthians. It deals with food offered to idols. It's been a long trip. I think we've been in this section for about six or seven lessons, I believe, uh, going all the way back to um, May 8th is when we started chapter 8. This is probably uh, the second longest uh, issue that Paul deals with in the church in Corinth. The first one, of course, being uh, the divisions in the church that he deals with in chapters 1 through 4. Here in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul deals with Uh, The subject of, as we saw in chapter 8, verse 1, things offered to idols, otherwise known as food offered to idols. Now, of course, as we saw back in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul introduces the subject uh, by saying, now concerning things offered to idols. And in chapter 8, he gives a basic answer to the problem. Now Paul brings this discussion to its conclusion And last time when we looked at chapter 10, uh, we looked at verses 14 through 22. And in that passage, Paul communicated three things to them uh, concerning idolatry, which is really what this topic, this, this issue deals with. It deals with freedom. Liberty, that's the underlying issue. Really, the, you know, the idea of meat offered to idols is just sort of the framework in which, this issue, in which this issue of Christian liberty is being discussed. And the problem is liberty as it deals with the issues of idolatry. So in the last section that we looked at in chapter 10, verse 14, if you remember, he begins by saying, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And the reason why he does this is because uh, the issue of uh, things offered to idols orbits the greater issue of idolatry as a whole. And he goes on to say, basically this command to flee idolatry is, is in, a, in a sense saying, look, don't have anything to do with idolatry. Don't mess around with idolatry. Don't even flirt near the edges of idolatry. Don't play fast and loose with idolatry. And the reason is because the first commandment is at issue here. The first commandment is at issue here. God gave ten basic 
rules which form the basis of our moral code. And number one, the number one issue, of course, is the first commandment to have no other gods before me. And now here Paul provides uh, two examples also to illustrate and make a point. And the point Paul is trying to make here is how when you participate in a religious service, you are somehow, in a sense, communicating or communing or participating in the, what is behind that religious service. And now the examples he gives, of course, are the Lord's Supper and also the Old Testament religious practice of eating uh, part of the sacrificial offering in the Old Testament uh, as well. Now, the Lord's Supper, of course, is a practice in which because of the sacramental union between the sign, bread and wine, and the things signified, the body and blood of Christ, there is a communion. That's why we call it communion. There is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. So there's a sense in which in that, uh, in that, in that ceremony of the Lord's Supper, you are, in a sense, participating in the blood the body and blood of Christ. You are, in a sense, uh, communing with the body and blood of Christ. It is, a, it is a sacramental union in which by faith you receive the bread and the wine, and then by faith you receive the body and blood of Christ. Similarly, of course, uh, there was a communion in the Old Testament when the priest and the offerer shared in the meat of the offering. And the point of these examples was to drive home the point that when you participate in the practice of pagan celebrations and eat meat offered to idols, you are in communion with demons. And we went through that last time. We went through that in depth last time because it's not that you are communing with the false gods because there are no other gods but one. But what in reality you have behind these idols, behind pagan rituals, are demonic forces. And when you participate in those religious practices, you are communing with demons. So it's it's incompatible for a Christian to have communion on the Lord's Day in which they partake of the Lord's Supper and commune with the body and blood of Christ. And then on a Wednesday, go into the pagan temple and eat a meal that had been shared to uh, some, you know, Greek or Roman God and have communion with demons or fellowship with demons. So Paul closes that section, do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Idolatry, in a sense, is spiritual adultery. That is what you see all throughout the Old Testament as Israel is, when they, when they commit idolatry, the prophets often sent to to rebuke Israel, said you are committing adultery with the Lord. The Lord has betrothed you to Himself, and when you, when you uh, commit uh, idolatry with other false gods, you are committing adultery, in a sense, with the Lord. So that provokes Him to jealousy, for the Lord your God is a jealous God and does not tolerate the worship of other gods that do not exist. So that brings us now to our passage this morning, which we just read, verses 23 to verse 1 of chapter 11. And so as Paul's point in the previous section was don't have fellowship with demons, Paul is now going to bring this home and says, well, what about if you buy meat in the meat market, right? I mean, the, the, the material cause, if you will, of this problem, of this question, is meat offered to idols. So, okay, I get it, Paul. You tell me, don't go and uh, participate in pagan rituals and eat the meat that was offered to idols. But what if I buy this in the meat market? Or what if someone invites me over to their home and I eat it there as well? So that's what this section is about. Should we worry about that? Now, again, based on the principles that Paul has laid out so far since chapter 8, we know that what Paul said in chapter 8 Idols are nothing, and the meat that had been offered to them is also fair game. But we also know, based on chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul said we should also sacrifice our liberty 
for the sake of our brother and their weaker conscience. So Paul now is going to return back to these themes here as he fleshes out his answer to the overall theme of Christian liberty, which is essentially this. And in the theme verse, really, if you want to look at it, is verse 30, where he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, sorry, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And that should be our motivating principle in all of this. That should be what drives our Christian life. It's not my liberty that is the important thing. It's not even necessarily a weaker brother's conscience as well. It is whether you can do what you want to do to the glory of God. So if you can exercise your freedom to the glory of God, then do it. If in order to promote the glory of God, you need to sacrifice your freedom, do it. That's what Paul's point is going to be. So first, we look here at freedom for the sake of others in verses 23 and 24. Now, as we read verses, or as I should say, well, as I read verse 23 again, and as I read it earlier, if that verse sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar. Uh, look again at verse 23 where Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Paul, this verse is very, it's, it's almost verbatim the same as what Paul said in verse 12 of chapter 6, dealing with the issue of sexual immorality. All things are lawful for me, this is chapter 6, verse 12, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And we mentioned this before, this strong link, if you will, between sexual immorality, as we saw in chapter 6, and idolatry, as we're seeing it here in chapters 8 through 11. In both cases, the Corinthians had this idea, all things are lawful, therefore I should be able to do it. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. In both cases, Paul, the Corinthians said, all things are lawful, so I'm free to, to exercise these things. But Paul said, no, 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 no. But not all things edify, and you should not come under the power of anything. And in both cases, Paul also told them, flee sexual immorality and flee idolatry, because the two are linked. Oftentimes, committing sexual immorality in this context was in the, in the context of idolatry. If you recall from chapter 6, the uh, case in which the Corinthians were uh, committing sexual uh, immorality. It was with temple prostitutes in a temple setting. So they, they were doing this as part of a pagan idolatrous ritual. And the Corinthians, of course, their mentality was, well, it's just my body. What I do with my body doesn't matter because my soul is saved. Again, it goes back to their, um, you know, their, their, their dichotomous view of body and soul, and, and it, it didn't matter if I sinned with my body because my body is nothing. Paul corrects that thinking because he tells him, no, 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 no. Your body is a temple. <laughs> Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you commit sexual immorality, when you have sex with the prostitute, you are defiling the temple. Same thing here in chapter 10. So here, the Corinthians, just as they were in chapter 6, were shouting their freedom. Sort of like, you know, if you've ever seen the movie, I, I, I know I, I should uh, be careful when I make movie references here because more often than not, people here haven't seen the movies I reference. But how many people here have seen Braveheart? Oh, a little more than I thought would. Okay, well, good. Then you remember, of course, the movie Braveheart in which uh, Mel Gibson plays the iconic Scottish hero, William Wallace, and there's a scene at the end of the movie when he is on trial and they ask him to recant and, and to bow the knee to, to King Edward. And, and instead, uh, William Wallace shouts out, Freedom! Well, in a sense, what you have here in Corinth is the Corinthians were sort of uh, behind with William Wallace and they were shouting their freedom. All things are lawful. I have freedom. Of course, that word lawful means, well, lawful, of course. It also means 
what is permissible, what is allowable, everything. Because I'm free, everything's permissible. Everything's lawful. And again, as we noted back in our study in chapter 6, again, how, how, how wonderfully these two chapters are connected. Um, I mean, this is an extreme libertine uh, attitude. Not, not just liberty, but libertine. All that matters is my liberty. All that matters is my freedom. All that matters is my autonomy. Now, we agree, right? Christ died to make us free. Amen to that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Christ died to set us free. Christ says, and Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. But, as I like to say, Christ did not set us free in order to sin. We are not free to sin. We are free from sin, but not free to sin. There are many things you can do. It doesn't mean you should do them. And as Paul says here, in response to their slogan, all things are lawful for me, he says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. Yeah, but not all things edify. Not all things build up. And we need to be, as Christians, we need to be more concerned with what is helpful, what is profitable, what is useful in the Christian life. We need to be more concerned with what is edifying, what builds up our, not only ourselves, but others as well. So we need to be more concerned with that than with what is permissible, with what is allowable. In fact, if you consider just some of the, the ways uh, the Scriptures illustrate and describe the Christian life, they bear this out. Christians are those who have come out of darkness into light. And then Paul will say in Ephesians 5, Therefore live as children of light. We are those who have risen from death into life. And then Paul will say in Romans 6, Therefore walk in newness of life. Christians are told to put off the old man, to crucify the flesh, and to put on the new man who is being made in the likeness of Christ. We are new creations. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Therefore, all things have passed away And behold, all things have become new. The old has passed away. All things are being made new. We are children, of course, who need discipline. We are sheep who need guiding. And we are branches who need pruning. All of these illustrations uh, in the Bible that describe Christianity and the Christian life, they describe us as free, but they also describe the fact that we need discipline. We need instruction. We need guidance. We need to stay away from the things that we were once enslaved to and embrace the liberty that we have in Christ. A liberty to obey. We have the freedom now to obey Christ. So yes, we're free. Now let us use that freedom to pursue those things that are helpful. Those things that are edifying not only to ourselves, but to others. So Paul then, in chapter 10, verse 24, says that our freedom is for the sake of others. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. You want to exercise your freedom? You want to use your liberty? How about in pursuit of the well-being of others? Is that a worthy enough goal? Do you think that is Christ-honoring and God-glorifying? You bet your bottom dollar it is. The Corinthian mentality was like the one who crossed a bridge from, from fiery danger to safety and then doesn't give a wit whether anyone else crosses the bridge. In fact, by some of their actions, you can almost see them as sort of kicking the bridge out from behind them. Paul had to deal with this issue in another church, not not as bad as Corinth, of course, but 
uh, flip over to, uh, turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul deals with, uh, you could just tell by the language, is you, you know, oftentimes you tell more by, you know, by what is not said in, in, in some of the scriptures. You can read between the lines and see that in his, what he says uh, hints at that there was some divisions in that church as well, splits in that church. And it's made more explicit in chapter 4. Don't, you don't need to turn there, but in chapter 4 where he, Paul implores two women and he names them by name. You know, oftentimes you see Paul name people. It's usually at the end of letters to give thanks and to give greetings and to commend so-and-so. But there are a few times when Paul mentions your name and mentions a name in a letter, and it's not good. And in this case, two women who had labored with him in the work of the gospel, Yodia and Syntyche, and he calls them out by name to this church. Calls them out by name. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And what you can take from that is that they weren't of the same mind. They were at one point because they labored with him, but then they got into a disagreement, as people often do. But in Philippians chapter 2, uh, there you see in verses 1 through 4, Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul implores this church to be of the same mind, to have the same way of thinking, to have the same love, to be of one accord. Unity. That is, to sum it up in one word, he wants unity in the church. And you get that by just bouncing up a few verses to verse 27 of chapter 1, where Paul there tells them, only let your conduct be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. That, that word conduct is, is a, it's an interesting word talks about being a worthy citizen. But not of Philippi, which was a Roman colony, but of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of Christ. It's the same word he uses in chapter 3 to say our citizenship is not of this world, but is in the kingdom. So let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, in other words, whether I'm with you or not, be consistent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Again, unity with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that, 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 that language that he uses there, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving for the same goal, the faith of the gospel, it's military language. You know, I mean, think about it, right? You know, a, an army is only as strong as they are unified in one purpose. If you've got soldiers going off over here, soldiers going off over there, and soldiers kind of just standing around minding their own business, they're not unified, and guess what? It's much easier to defeat them. But if they're all lined up in ranks, and they're standing fast, and they're ready, and, and standing firm, and, and ready to face the, the enemy, then they are a force to be reckoned with. And of course, that, that section we just read in Philippians chapter 2 is the prelude to the great uh, passage in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the Carmen Christi, the song of Christ, that talks about his humiliation and his exaltation, how Christ um, gave up the prerogatives of deity to come into this world. So Paul tells him, be of one mind, have the same accord, and work together, be unified. Um, and have this same mind, verse 5, have this same mind that is also in Christ Jesus. How he was not concerned about his own welfare, but concerned about the, 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 the welfare of others. So have the same mind as Christ. 
And what did Christ do for the welfare of others? Well, He gave of Himself. He left the glories of heaven. He left and set aside the prerogatives of deity. He emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. The king became a servant. The sovereign became a slave. And he met the needs of others. There's nothing more Christ-like than being concerned with the interests of others. That's how we have the mind of Christ. It's not that we're called to do what Christ did, but we're to have the same mindset that was in Christ. He left the glories of heaven to come in the form of a servant and die for those who hated Him. And He did it for love. And love, as we have defined, is meeting the needs of others at my own expense. And likewise, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul urges us to use our freedom, our liberty, for the well-being of others, to be helpful and to be edifying. So that's freedom for the sake of others. Now, in verses 25 to 30, freedom for the sake of conscience. So freedom is not only for the sake of others, but is also for the sake of conscience. Look at verses 25 and 26 of chapter 10. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Now, it might seem like Paul's all over the place in this subject, right? But he's not really, because in the previous passage, which we alluded to earlier, chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, Paul said there, Do not eat meat that is offered to idols in the pagan temple. In other words, do not eat meat offered to idols within the context of pagan worship. Because in doing so, you are in a sense participating in that pagan worship. But buying meat in the meat market is fine, even if it had been offered in a a pagan ritual to idols. Because really, there's three, three ways to eat meat offered to idols. One is forbidden, which is the actually going to the temple and participating in the, the pagan rituals. The other is to buy the meat that was in the market because when those, when those uh, uh, sacrifices were done, some of the meat was burned up in the sacrifice itself. Some of the meat was eaten as part of a ritual meal, and what was left over was given to the meat market to sell. So that's the second way to do it. And the third way to do it is if you're invited to someone's home and they had gotten meat from the meat market. So Paul is saying here, freedom allows you to buy meat in the meat market, no questions asked. You don't have to perform an investigation. You don't have to unnecessarily burden your conscience with whether or not this meat had been part of a pagan ritual. Just buy the meat. (laughs) Just buy the meat. This goes back to what he said in chapter 8, right? An idol is nothing, and meat offered to idols is nothing. As long as you're buying it in the meat market, don't worry about it. The the, the meat isn't contaminated with, with demon cooties, okay? The meat is just meat. It's no longer in the context of pagan worship, so it's okay. Now, as a former Jew, this would go against everything Paul had been taught to believe because as a Jew, in order to keep the kosher food laws, they had to make sure, was this meat offered to an idol? Was this meat, you know, so on and so forth? Is this really, you know, did this animal have a cloved hoof? Did it chew the cut? All these things. You know, so he had to make sure of all these things in order to make sure that the meat was kosher. But in Christ, all things are clean. Right? That's, that's the whole point of what we're seeing here. It's also the whole point of that story we read in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is called to go preach the gospel to Cornelius. Prior to the, the men of Cornelius coming to retrieve Peter, uh, Peter gets a vision. God gives him a vision of a, of a giant picnic black, you know, blanket, you know, to quote Yogi Bear. A giant picnic blanket with all kinds of meat on it, all kinds of food, clean and unclean. And the voice from heaven tells Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter, dear, dear Peter, love, his, love him dearly. Because Peter is like one of us, right? You know, so Peter begins to talk to God. and says, well, no, wait, God, you know, you're wrong. 
right? You're wrong. I, I can't eat that because that's... Un- no, and God's like, that's, you're not getting it, Peter. I'm calling it clean. That's why we see the quote from Psalm 24, verse 1 in chapter 26. The whole earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. God made everything freely to enjoy. Paul tells Timothy, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So meat is meat. God made it and so it is good. Even if it had been offered to an idol, it is no longer in that setting once it's in the meat market. It is removed from the context of pagan worship. It is removed from the context of demonic fellowship. As we said, there's a third um, scenario in which you might possibly eat meat that had been offered to an idol. Look at verse 27. If any of those who do not believe, an unbeliever, invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. So suppose you're invited to an unbeliever's home for supper. If so, Paul says, be a good guest and eat whatever is laid before you. And like in the meat market, don't unnecessarily burden your conscience by performing an investigation with your host to determine the origin of this meat. Again, because God is the originator of all things. There is no need to burden your conscience unnecessarily. So you get invited to an unbeliever's house and, and he rolls out the, the good meat and you, know, you don't have to sit there and say, well, was it offered to idols? No, just eat it. Free. Freely. Do not burden your conscience. Do not worry about it because it is uh, all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right? It is, everything is clean because God has made it clean. You are free to eat. And now we get to a portion of Scripture that has caused problems for interpreters. Now, when I say problems, it's not so much what we see in verses 28 and 29 that are problematic. It's how they fit in the context of verses 27 to 30 that make it problematic. Now, I agree with the commentators who see verse 28 and the first half of verse 29 as sort of a parenthetical comment. You see this, you've seen this in the Bible before, right? Sometimes the, the biblical translators will add parentheses to indicate that this phrase is sort of like an aside, if you will, a, a, you know, a side comment. Um, we, we will see it even in our sermon passage this morning in John chapter 10 when Jesus is talking to the, uh, the Jewish leaders. And um, he talks about, you know, they, they have accused him of blasphemy. This is John chapter 10, the last few verses there. They accused him of blasphemy because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So they say, no, 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 you're a blasphemer because you being a man make yourself God. And Jesus tells them, it's like, look, even in your own scriptures, we see that, you know, he has called them, you are gods referring to unjust judges. We'll get into that context. But then there's that little parenthetical comment, and the scriptures cannot be broken. In other words, he's taking a moment to say, look, your scriptures say this, and as an aside, and we know the scriptures can't be broken, you are God. So that's, that's the point here. So you know, some commentators believe, and I, I, I'm, I tend to agree with them, that verses 28 and 29, the first half of 29, are just like that. It's an aside. It's it's a clarification of something. So, let's read just verses 27 through 30, treating 28 and the first half of 29 as a parenthetical comment, and hopefully you'll see as I read it that it'll make sense what I'm saying. So again, look at verse 27. If any of those who do not believe invites you to a dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. Now, as an aside, but if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake. Conscience, and say, not your own, but that of the other. End parentheses. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? 
Okay, does that kind of flow? Do you think that makes sense? I think it makes sense, better sense of the passage. Because in those verses there, 28 and first half of 29, Paul is hypothesizing of a situation in which an unbelieving host actually tells you that this meat had been offered to idols. Now, the situation is probably something along these lines. And it's this. See, an unbeliever looks at a Christian, sees that you know, Christianity and Judaism are related, and knows that Jews have certain concerns about meat offered to idols. So this unbeliever may invite you over to their home, knows that you're a Christian, is about ready to set out all this wonderful meat, and he says, now... I just want to make sure you know, I got this in the meat market and it had been offered to idols. So in that situation, Paul is instructing the Corinthian church and us by extension, abstain. Not for your conscience, because you know that meat offered to idols is okay because idols are nothing. But for the conscience of the one who asks you, your unbelieving host. Right? Because if you say, no, 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 I want to chow down, I'm hungry, that filet mignon looks pretty darn good. So you start chowing down, now he's going to think, wait a second, I thought Christians didn't do these things. So now you're wounding the conscience of the unbeliever, in a sense, offending him, and in a sense, maybe giving him a negative view of Christians, and a negative view of the church. So you do it for conscience sake, not your own, as he says in verse 29, I say not your own, but that of the other, the unbelieving host who informed you that this meat had been offered to idols. So this is a witnessing, an evangelistic use or restriction, I should say, of your liberty for the sake of the unbeliever. Now when we get to the second half of verse 29, Paul again picks up where he left off at verse 27. Again at the end of verse 27, He says, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. Verse 29, the second half. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Verse 30, but if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? In other words, eat whatever you buy in the meat market and whatever an unbelieving host places before you, your conscience is not captive to that of another. And it's okay to eat whatever is laid before you, recognizing the God who provides it all. Which is why when I say I give thank, when he says I give thanks to it, why should my conscience be held captive to your uh, my liberty, I should say, be held captive to your conscience when I'm eating this food, giving thanks to the Lord who provided it for me. So now finally we move on to freedom for the sake of God's glory. Verses 31 to 33 and then the bonus verse, chapter 11, verse 1. And we now, what we come, or I should say what we are coming to here is the purpose not only for this issue surrounding Christian liberty, but really for the whole Christian life. Look at verse 31, please. Therefore, whether you eat or drink. Now, in this case, Paul is um, grounding this, this exhortation in the context of chapters 8, 9, and 10. So whatever you eat, meat after idols, so on and so forth, whatever you drink, and then to make it more general to be applied to the whole of the Christian life, or whatever you do. The catch-all. Eating, drinking, and everything else. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So whether you eat meat offered to idols or not, whether you drink or not, whatever it is that you do or do not, If you can do it or do not do it for the glory of God, then it's good. One of the slogans of the Reformation, uh, the slogans of the Reformation, they're not the five points of Calvinism, not, not tulip. It's the five solas, right? The five solas of the Reformation. 
So you have sola scriptura. What is our authority? Sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority for faith and practice in the church. The sole infallible authority for faith and practice in the church. How are we saved? How is one made just before a holy and righteous God? Sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus. By faith alone, or sorry, uh, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And all of it, of course, is the fifth sola, soli deo gloria, which means to God's glory alone. That is the overriding umbrella that should guide all of the Christian life. Whatever you do to the glory of God alone, do it. Or don't do it. One can look at the Corinthian church and see a multitude of problems. Right? Just in the few chapters, the ten chapters we've looked at, we've seen divisions in the church. Right? Schisms in the church. The church dividing over popular teachers. We've seen sexual immorality in the church in the form of a form of incest and also in uh, temple prostitution. We've seen lawsuits in the church. The church being torn apart by airing its dirty laundry before secular law courts. We've seen squabbles over marriage, whether you should stay married or divorce or stay single or get married or so on and so forth. And now we're seeing squabbles over Christian liberty. And we're only through the first ten chapters. This is indeed a struggling church, which is why the series is entitled Guidance for a Struggling Church and why its truths are so applicable to the church even now in the 21st century because these problems are not new problems. They are problems that have faced the church of Jesus Christ for all her history. So this indeed is a struggling church, and the apostle oftentimes applies the spiritual two-by-four upside the head of this church. They need to refocus on first principles. And the first principle is namely this. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Stop crying over your freedom. Stop crying over your liberty. Stop squabbling over who's the better teacher, Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Stop, uh, take, stop taking your church discipline issues to the, to the law courts. Right? Stop, stop squabbling over marriage. Stop, stop, stop engaging in harmful sexual activity or flirting with idolatry. Focus on the glory of God. Again, Christian liberty is not what is about what it's not about what is permissible. It's not about what is allowable. That, that's, that's a baby way of thinking, right? That's, the, that's a childish way of thinking. My rights, my freedom. You see this so much in our culture today. So much in our culture. Everything is about my rights, my liberty, my autonomy. And, and, and as, a, as a result, our culture is being ripped apart. Which is why I'm always thankful to God that our hope is not in the United States of America. I love this country dearly. And it, it, it pains me to see how our country is, is being torn apart because we have... We've lost our foundations. Whether you believe the, Amer you know, the United States of America is a Christian nation or not, uh, it's certainly been, it was founded on Christian principles. And it was, and it was um, uh, you know, at its heart were men who understood, if, if not following God, at least understood the issues of morality in a Christian worldview. And we've all but jettisoned that foundation. And, you know, maybe for the past 30 or four so or so years, we've been sort of riding on the, the fumes of that, that, that legacy. But now, we are definitely no longer in a, in a, in a culture that, is, that knows Christian values. We are in a post-Christian culture. And, and now you're seeing it fall apart. You know, when the foundation has is, is been removed, 
you know, the, the, the structure cannot stand. And again, it's, I love this country and I want to see it thrive, but it's, it, our hope is not in trying to revitalize a Christian nation. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to spread the kingdom of God through the witness of the gospel. But again, this idea of liberty for liberty's sake, that's a, that's a baby way of thinking. It's immature, which is why Paul says earlier, says, you are babes, you are infants. I want to feed you solid food, but I have to continue giving you milk. The mature way of thinking sees God's glory as the highest good, the sumum bonum of the Christian life, not my liberty. That's, that's the baby way of thinking. My liberty, that's the highest good. No, no, it is God's glory. And we saw it last week when we looked at the shorter catechism. Question one, right? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God. Right off the bat, the first question out of the shorter catechism is your purpose in this world is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Paul echoes this. Paul echoes this in the book of Colossians when he writes to them in chapter 3, verse 17. So he echoes this passage here we're looking at where he says in chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do, there you go. Again, in word and in deed. So that kind of covers everything, right? Whatever you say, whatever you do, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do all for the glory of God. Then Paul wraps up here in verses 32 and 33 of chapter 10, where he says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So whatever we do in life, we do so as not to offend or place a stumbling block in front of anyone, whether that be Jew, Gentile, or even weaker brothers in the church. So that's the point of giving up your freedom. It's in order to make straight paths for the Gospel. It is in order to make straight paths for the kingdom of God so as not to place stumbling blocks for those who are seeking, whether it be Jew or Gentile, or to retard, if you will, the growth of an immature, uh, weaker brother in the faith. That was Paul's practice, as we saw in chapter 9. Not that Paul was a people pleaser, but that he would make himself a slave to all to win some. And then finally, here you go, the bonus verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Christ is not only our Savior and Messiah, He is also our example. Right? Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says to lay off all weight of sin that weighs you down and to run the race that is set before you, looking to whom? To Christ, right? He is the author and perfecter. He is the forerunner. He is the one who lays the ground. He is the one we should follow. Now, of course, you know, to be sure, there are things which Christ did which by their nature are unrepeatable. So the call to imitate Christ is not to walk on the water. The call to imitate Christ is not to multiply five uh, loaves and two fish. The call to imitate Christ is not to die as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. But we are called to, to imitate his obedience to the Father. That's something we can and should follow. And Paul's call here is not to imitate him because he's got it all down pat. No, you imitate his imitating. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying. Follow my following. <laughs> in other words, as I follow Christ, follow me in that sense. Paul's not saying, follow me, I want a following. He's saying, follow my servitude to Christ. Follow how I follow Christ. Follow my following. But as we close, there's one thing. Uh, on the back of your handouts is a handy little flow chart. Uh, being a guy who used to be in IT, um, I, like, I like flow charts. So here you go. Now the flow chart, like I said, is very useful because it, it highlights the issues of liberty. Right? So the first box there is, is it biblical? 
In other words, does the Bible allow what I'm thinking I want to do? If the answer is no, then what's the, what's, what's the response that I should follow then? Don't do it, right? If the Bible says don't do it, you don't do it. You don't have freedom to do what the Bible says you shouldn't do. If the Bible allows it, then you move on to the next question there. Does my conscience allow it? Now, your conscience, that you, we've said this before, that's your warning system, right? Your conscience is your warning system. Your conscience tells you and alerts you, this might be wrong, don't do it, or this is okay, do it. Uh, now, your conscience can be wrong, right? Let's, let's admit that. That's what, that was one of the problems here. A weaker conscience is one that is maybe overly sensitive and, and you hope to grow in your faith and grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. So your conscience can be wrong, but Paul also will say it is, it is a sin to go against conscience. So does the Bible allow it? Okay, that's fine then. Does your conscience allow it? If your conscience doesn't allow it, don't do it. You don't want to, you don't want to start violating your conscience unnecessarily and then sort of hardening it or searing your conscience, as Paul will say in other places. So, but if your conscience allows it, then you move on to the third box, which has three questions there that deal with now. You're now in the area of freedom. And, you know, there, what's, what's the effect of my action on others? Because love is more important than my freedom. What is the effect on myself? Can I become enslaved to this thing? Because... My own spiritual health is more important than my freedom. What's the effect on the gospel? How does it affect the gospel going forth? Because the, the kingdom of God is more important than my freedom. All of that, in that freedom area, you're looking now at that whatever I, you do, do it all for the glory of God. And there we come to the end of our section this morning. Uh, and the end of this long point that began in chapter 8 next week. Um, if you don't mind, we're going to just skip verses 2 through 6. No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're not going to skip verses 2 through 16. It's just it's a difficult passage because uh, it's often been misinterpreted and, and it causes consternation. And really it causes consternation because sometimes the Word of God has an effect on our conscience and on our, on our, our sensibilities where it, we, we sense the the uh, criticism of the Word of God a little more deeply. But we'll, we will consider verses 2 through 16 next time as the Corinthians raise a new issue uh, to Paul. But we'll, we'll stop there for now.